This is an ABC podcast. Alex Bruskowski spends a lot of his life around big cats, but he's only been really scared once. On that day in Uganda, Alex was tracking a pride of rare tree-climbing lions. He was in his little Suzuki Jeep without proper doors. And as night began to fall, the lions came down from their trees and became very interested in Alex. Alex is a conservation biologist and a wildlife cameraman with National Geographic. He's documented leopards in India, jaguars in the Amazon and lions in Uganda. And one of the lions there that has a special place in his heart is known as Jacob. And if ever there was a cat who really did have nine lives, it would be Jacob, who survived being poisoned, trapped, snared and gored by a buffalo. Hi, Alex. Hi, Sarah. Hi. You grew up in Africa on the continent that's home to these amazing mammals, but where were you born? I, I was born in, uh, in a little uh, town in, in Greece, in Athens, called Attica. Um, yeah, my parents were uh, refugees from Poland and they, they fled to Greece. And um, yeah, I was born, born along the small little seaside town, yeah. Do you have any memories of Greece? Uh, mainly animal and beach memories, actually. So uh, dolphins and, uh, yeah, small cocker spaniels. That's really the only thing I re- remember, yeah. So that's where you were when, when you were born. How did your family end up in South Africa? They were basically trying to find a way to kind of rebuild their lives after the, the fall of communism. And in 1993, it was basically a toss-up between either Canada, Australia and South Africa. And uh, they managed to get a, a little window to, to become doctors in South Africa. And that's where they went. Yeah. And so where were you based there? Uh, jo- Johannesburg, first in a little place called Rosettenville and then later Parkhurst before moving down to the the town of Durban in KwaZulu-Natal, yeah. Lots of people, Alex, who devote their working lives to animals the way that that you do, they're often being drawn to them from a very young age. Like some of their first memories seem to be about trying to trap reptiles or chase after the family dog. Was that the case with you? Yeah, so those those memories from Greece was actually, yeah, it was, it was actually a dolphin that had washed up on the beach. So I don't know if that kind of spoke to me as a little, you know, probably two or three-year-old. Um, but then later it was, it was snakes that sort of drew me, um, you know, working at the Johannesburg Zoo as a volunteer. Yeah, there was always something, uh, either, either keeping a snake or, you know, was, there was always some, some kind of animal link uh, throughout my childhood. Tell me how you ended up working as a volunteer at the zoo in Johannesburg. It wasn't a uh, particularly uh, joyful story. I was quite a naughty uh, young boy. It was grade eight, De La Salle Holy Cross College, and I was very naughty. I, I, uh, I, I got into an altercation with my algebra teacher at that point, and I landed up throwing a, a, a ham sandwich I got expelled and, um, yeah, while my parents were looking for a new school for me, I, I, I decided to volunteer at the Johannesburg Zoo. <laughs> ham sandwich. Well, it could have been worse. I thought you were going to say like you threw a chair at the algebra teacher. Ham <laughs> sandwiches. Thankfully, it was a soft landing, I, I yeah. assume. How did your parents react to that? I mean, immigrant doctors, I guess they had pretty high expectations for their son. How, yeah. how were things at home when that happened? I think they were pretty pretty lousy uh, growing up in terms of uh, sort of my academic performance. I was certainly a late bloomer on the whole uh, science and conservation biology front. Uh, It only happened 
when I left school and, and I kind of got into an awkward position because of my inability to get good marks, especially in maths, I wasn't an immediate fit for the zoology program. So I actually couldn't get into university. So tell me about the volunteering work then, where you had this practical experience with animals at the zoo. What, what kind of animals did you work with uh, when you were just 12, 13? Yeah, it was uh, chimpanzees and then also at the reptile section with a guy called Andrew Pringle. Uh, so I was working on um, snakes, but, but mostly just chopping up uh, vegetables and fruit for the chimpanzees. Yes, yeah, so it was... Um, <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, for any youngster, those kinds of imprinting memories of being close to animals, especially large primates, are pretty special. Instead of going straight into to university, you went to Game Ranger School, which sounds sort of wildly exciting. What happens at Game Ranger School? Yeah, so that was at the Southern African Wildlife College. It's, um, it's actually it's still available to anybody who might be interested it, it's actually a wildlife campus that's located in the, in the, on the edge of the Kruger National Park in South Africa, uh, our, our largest and wildest national park in South Africa. Basically, it was, a, it was about a year-long course uh, teaching students from all sort of walks of life on how to track animals, uh, basic biology and conservation, and also even showing guests uh, what to and what not to do around uh, wildlife on safari. And even as a as a young guy, teenager still, I guess at that point, 18 or so, was it being out away from other people, away from the cities and suburbs, being in the wild that was part of what was drawing you as well as the animals themselves? Yeah, I think so. And uh, I think increasingly there's, there's fewer and fewer, you know, wild spaces. And what I mean by wild spaces, I don't necessarily mean where people are not found. There's, there's a lot of places where you find people and wildlife living together across the world. What I mean specifically is this idea of big, fierce animals living with us. So things like elephants, things like, you know, Cape buffalo, African lions, leopards, tigers, whatever they might be, those are becoming rarer. So I think that was the, the draw card of the Wildlife College was the ability to live alongside things like elephants. You did then end up at, at university, at the Nelson Mandela University. What was your campus like? Yeah, that, that's uh, one of the academic sort of gems of South Africa that not many people know about. They know about the University of Cape Town, but they don't know that there's a smaller campus about 300 kilometers east called um, the Nelson Mandela University School of Natural Resource Management. And uh, what's incredible about this place is it's nestled into the heart of the Cape Fold Mountains and, and also some of the last temperate forests of South Africa. So you have... Um, yeah, campus that's, that's, that's actually also got big animals living on it. So you've got leopards running around there. You've got caracal running, running around, around there. Running around the actual, like, past the yep. library. And yep. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a little, um, uh, there's a, a, a campus uh, section called Fern Tech. It's like where the, the, the furniture training, the equivalent of TAFE, takes place. And uh, there's been leopards that have been photographed on camera traps right there. Amazing. Are they dangerous? No, not at all. These, these particular leopards are very interesting because they're about half the size of leopards across the majority of continental Africa. So uh, traditionally leopards will sort of males will get up to about 85, 86 kilograms, females maybe 45, 50. These ones are literally half that. So males will seldom get to over 45 kilograms and females maybe 22, 25 kilograms. So these tiny little, you know, diminutive leopards running around the campus. Yeah. <laughs> What did you come to appreciate about leopards living so close to them during that time, Alex? What did you learn about them as, as a species? At that point, there wasn't a lot of knowledge known specifically about uh, what they are eating there and also some of their interactions with people uh, and also how many they live. Basically, after every 
campus class that I would have, I would go out with a little backpack and try and collect the, the droppings of the leopards, try and find them to see what they were eating. What were they eating? So in, the, in that particular area, because there's forest, they're actually eating uh, bushbuck. So it's a, it's a medium-sized ungulate that weighs about uh, 45, 50 kilograms. And also, ironically, these small rats called flay rats. Uh, they live in the sort of swamp and the grassland areas around the campus. So here you were doing academic work, I guess, starting to research these big cats and, and other animals of this part of Africa. How did you get a, a foot in the door first off with National Geographic? That was really uh, the, the workings of, of one man uh, initially uh, called Steve Winter. So he's National Geographic's arguably the, the premier big cat photographer. Uh, he's been working on big cats for over 25 years for the magazine. He's just embarked on his latest Asiatic lion story. And, and uh, we met in 2012 when I was actually doing my master's fieldwork on leopards in a, in a game reserve called Pinda. And uh, I guided him around for just a week, showed him some of the leopards, showed him some of the wildlife. Just he was taking photos at the time. And then later, a couple of years later, I needed a job and I was just looking. I was contacting people and I said, hey, you know, have you got anything going on? And he's like, yeah, I'm about to embark on the biggest magazine story uh, on leopards ever done. Do you want to help? It's great timing, Alex, to yeah. get in contact at that point. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. How did the lifestyle of, of a National Geographic photographer compare to the lifestyle you'd been living as a, as a student? Did it look like something? Did it look like an enjoyable path, an appealing path for you to follow? Yeah, I mean, at, th at that point, I hadn't really done all that much traveling. So that was, I guess, the first thing. You know, I'd, the only places I'd traveled to really were Mauritius and England and a couple of places in Europe. So it was all pretty tame in terms of, um, you know, other than traveling across Africa, I hadn't really been to any places, particularly, you know, South America or um, also Asia. And um, that's, that's where we landed up. Uh, one of our first stops was India. So we spent about three months there documenting everything from leopards living uh, in a city in Mumbai to, um, you know, man-eaters up in the north of the country uh, along the Himalayas. Uh, so that was just a huge eye-opening experience culturally and also just what on earth these leopards are actually capable of doing. So I'd say that those were the immediate lifestyle eye-openers, yeah. What did you learn from Steve in terms of photographing and filming these incredible animals? I guess there's two things. The first is that Although Steve would obviously always take incredible images of the the leopards or the tigers or the lions that he was uh, that were his subjects, it was really more important seeing him in action, photographing everything around the study subject. So you know when we think of a National Geographic story, we think oh amazing photographs of lions or leopards, but if you actually look deeper, it's every story has actually got to do with the people or the habitats. So it, it's, it's, it's everything around the subject. That was the most important thing that I learned from him. And then obviously his camera trapping and his lighting are, are par excellence uh, compared to nobody else. So those are the things. What role does chance play in, in getting a great photograph of an animal in the wild, though? How, how much is it down to luck? Um, I'd say 80% luck and 20% knowledge of the species ecology and biology. So with big cats that he focuses on, there's two things. The problem is they occur in most cases at very low densities. So your chances of getting them on a camera trap, very low. The second thing is also they use very specific habitat characteristics, mainly roads and trails. So it's about knowing where to set your camera trap, 
and hoping that the cat happens to be in the neighbourhood. You then began working with these tree-climbing lions, Alex. Where do they live? So the tree-climbing lions are particularly interesting because there's only really three or four populations in the whole of Africa that have this cultural behaviour, and that happens to be in Lake Nakuru in um, Kenya. It it also happens to be in um, uh, Tanzania's Serengeti National Park, uh, Queen Elizabeth in Uganda. There's a couple of other little places, but those are the main ones. Yeah. And you call it a, a cultural behaviour because, like, my cat climbs trees. Like, do all big cats, are they all able to climb trees? They, they're all able to climb trees, but the, the cultural element is very interesting because in these populations, almost every lion is doing it. So it's, it's not just seeing a lion once a week up in a tree somewhere. This is... Every day, usually around 8 or 9 a.m., they climb and they come down at about 6 p.m. Well, like they're going up and kind of clocking on for work and, and it, spending the working day out there. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Incredible. And, and why, I guess, is the obvious question. Why are lions spending most of the daylight hours in trees? Yeah, there's, there's sort of three hypotheses that seem to be floating around. The first is that they're trying to escape biting flies. So in a lot of East Africa, there's a, a fly called a tsetse fly. It's pretty gnarly in terms of its its ability to sort of bite you and, and cause discomfort. So that's the first one. The second is that they are trying to get up there to sort of establish a vantage point and see their prey. And the third one is, which I like, is the getting up high to escape the heat of the day. And uh-huh. if you look at koalas, koalas do this. So it's about a degree or two cooler, about 30 feet up in the in the trees. So when they climb the big fig trees in Ishasha, um, you know, I, I, I resonate with that hypothesis the best. But no one, no one really has evidence at this stage. If it is to do with temperature, are they more likely to climb in the hotter months or is it something that happens all year round? Well, in East Africa, you know, it's, it's the, the temperature variations along the equator are not very uh, vast. Even in winter, it, in winter, in inverted commas, it's still pretty hot. It's still worth climbing a tree. Yeah, get... the only time they do come down almost immediately is when it rains. And the reason they're coming down when it rains is because the branches get slippery. And then it's really a comedy show because (laughs) seeing a a cat that weighs 300 or 350 pounds trying to get down and then usually falling out of a tree is pretty comical. (laughs) What kind of trees are they climbing? So in in Queen Elizabeth National Park uh, on the Congolese border, uh, it seems to be mainly sort of three species. It's, um, it's the uh, ficus, uh, ficus sycamorus, which is the river fig, uh, sort of big, uh, thick branched tree with sort of splayed out branches. And that's usually where you get the most incredible pictures. But then there's this crazy, almost cactus-like euphorbia, um, which is actually one of the most poisonous species on continental Africa called euphorbia ingens. They also climb that weirdly because they kind of get stuck in the branches and then there's also one or two acacias that they climb in terms of that cactus looking tree i mean do the do the spikes hurt them are they irritated by by the tree yeah so there's not really spikes per se they're almost like little tiny at some points is like spines but they're not particularly pronounced it's it's really the milky latex so uh, if you happen to pierce or break the 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 branches of that tree it's that latex that is incredibly poisonous. It's actually used um, in some places as a fish poison, yeah. And does that affect the lions? It doesn't seem to. It doesn't seem to because they don't seem to really pierce the 
into the sort of heartwood of the of the tree. They just seem to sort of get up and then they just sort of position themselves, wedge themselves in between the branches. <laughs> and is there more than one lion in a tree? Oh, yeah. Sometimes you can see eight, nine, ten lions in one of these euphorbias, which is just crazy. You said, Alex, it's a cultural behaviour. Why as a scientist do you know it's something cultural rather than just something innate that this species does? Yeah. So I, I had like a, a debate with a bunch of lion scientists about this because recently on the African Lion Working Group sort of email chat, you know, which is the a collection of Africa's lion experts, and they were all saying, yeah, lions climb trees in all of our areas. It's nothing new. But I, I said, yeah, but do they climb this every day? And, and, and this is what's very different about these lions is that they are learning this from the maternal line. So they're learning it from their mothers and uh, the sisters and the aunts and the, and the little cubs. They're watching their older siblings and, and nephews doing this. And it's, and it's very clear. You can see them picking it up roughly from about six weeks of age, following their, their, their siblings and their relatives up the tree. It's fascinating. Is that, I mean, how are prides uh, constituted? Like when a, a cub is that young, is it living with all of the, uh, the members of its pride or just its mum and, and siblings? Yeah, so for the first sort of uh, four to six weeks, the, what the lionesses will do is they'll actually, they'll sort of move away from the pride. And what they'll do is they'll find a, a safe resting spot and then they'll have the cubs there and then she will be guarding them with her whole life, her whole soul. And, and only after about four, five, six weeks, she'll slowly start introducing those cubs to the rest of the pride. Just because, you know, they're so small and there's new smells. Yeah, and, and obviously also because of the fact that, um, you know, there is an infanticide element in lions, you know, and uh, there's paternal uncertainty as to who the father might be. About half of all lions under the age of one will actually die because of um, infanticide. Infanticide where a male will come and actually kill the progeny of a pride. So if there's a potentially a, a takeover that's taken place and there's a new male in town and, and a female happened to sire cubs from the previous male, she'll be very wary of, of, of that. When that lioness has moved away with her cubs from the rest of the pride, how is she feeding herself? Does she have to go off and hunt or is she just subsisting on, on her existing fat stores? So she'll what? still go out and hunt, but um, a lot of the time, you know, it, it, there might be a little bit more of a prolonged period between hunts and... She's obviously suckling, so she still needs to, to hunt and she needs to actually produce you know, a lot more milk and energy for those cubs. So, yeah, so she's still hunting, yeah. And when the lionesses start introducing their cubs into the trees and, and tree climbing, what have you observed? How do they go about teaching baby lions to climb trees? Yeah, so it's, it's more of the, the instinct is coming from the, the little ones trying to join their mother at the top. You know, and she'll be calling them and sort of edging them on. But uh, a lot of the time they just fall out. But they slowly pick it up, you know. And, uh, you know, a lot of the time the, the distance that they're climbing is not particularly dramatic. So, you know, those falls are not as, they're not as bad for them as, as yeah. What sounds do little cubs make? Yeah, it's, it's sort of these small, those kinds of sort of small uh, lo location calls. And um, they, they can't really vocalize very, very much at that age. That's, that's, that's what they sound like, yeah. <laughs> when they're trying to get up that tree or, exactly. maybe, or maybe falling out. This national park, the Queen Elizabeth uh, National Park in Uganda, how do you travel there as a scientist? What, what's it like to get to this 
part of Uganda? Yeah, so um, Kampala, really the sort of the capital, has really got one exit road out, uh, the sort of Kasese Road, and then there's another road, the, the Mbarara Road. So there's sort of two two avenues out of the city, and the, the, you sort of can get to the national park in anything from about 8 to 11 hours, depending on which road you take and how good your car is and sort of the general state of the, the highway along the, along the path, yeah. And once you're out there in the national park, where are you sleeping? So for my PhD, I was just sleeping in a number of places, sometimes on my rooftop tent. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a little collapsible tent that just lives on my, on my car. Uh, in small lodges, I was staying in a place called Tembo Safari Lodge. I literally had a tiny little room. I think it would cost about eight bucks a night to stay in with a little bed. Um, and in other times, you're just sleeping in your car. And what are the sounds like at night? It's truly special because of the, I'd say that if there's one animal that, that really makes it special is the, the whooping calls of the hyena. That's truly something amazing. And then obviously the lion, if, if, you know, if you're fortunate to be living in a place where there are still lions, hearing that roar at night is probably one of the most enigmatic things you'll ever hear in your life. One lion that you encountered for the first time back in 2018 is a lion known as Jacob. Why did he stand out to you the first time you met him, Alex? He, he stood out just because I think initially, you know, we were trying to get interesting behaviour on video that people hadn't seen of these lions. And when I say interesting behaviour that people hadn't seen using new technology, and at that point, drones had just come onto the market. So we used a, a small little Mavic 2. We got special permission from the Uganda Wildlife Authority to be able to use this drone. And he was really the first individual to tolerate this drone. Really? It didn't bother him? It didn't bother him. him. And, and within a week, he got so used to it that, you know, we could get to within a metre of him with this drone. So we got this incredible footage, you know, with a 24 millimetre lens of him just chilling in this tree, getting up, you know, and this is, you know, 25 feet up in the air, uh, stretching, just looking at the tree, um, making a wee out of the tree, you know, like completely <laughs> relaxed, like the, like the drone wasn't even there. So that was really the, it was this unique behavior we got to him, you know, we, we got very intimate with him with this drone. And that's really how he became a central character in our in our documentary, and then later in a second documentary that we made. Yeah, who named him Jacob? Jacob was named by uh, Mustafa Nsebugo, who is, uh, I think, in my view, probably the Ugandan authority on on tree climbing lions. He he's worked for every major conservation NGO, uh, you know, the WCS, the Uganda Conservation Foundation. He's now working for the Virunga National Park in the Congo. And he knows those lions better than anyone because he studied them and been around them for more than two decades. So humans can recognise individual lions, Jacob and his sister, Jessica, and, and the rest of them. What about lions? Are they recognising you opposed to Mustafa, do you think? I don't think so. I, I think, you know, generally 99% of lion encounters... Um, you know, lions will look at you in a vehicle as sort of one single entity. Uh, if they see a game drive vehicle, they're not going to really pay attention. Um, there are obviously some handful of events. So in 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 uh, in Zambia, in Lua Plains, there was once a lioness that developed a very strong relationship with a cameraman because she was the last lioness. 
and she got so used to a particular cameraman that he could walk alongside her. So she definitely recognized him. But that was a very unique circumstance. It's very rare that you're going you're gonna to be able to develop that kind of a bond with an individual animal. So, Jacob, when you, when you first encountered him and it had already been known to researchers, what had he survived in his life by this stage, by, by, the, first, by the time you first met him? Um, I don't think he'd survived a, a, a lot other than he was getting pressured by his, his, uh, his dad and his uncle. So there was a, a coalition of male lions there called uh, Sura, Saleh and uh, Sultan, also named by Mustafa. And they were these big, black-maned, charismatic males, you know, the, the, the Romeos of this part of the world, these incredible 250-kilogram male lions, three of them. And they were just these big tanks. And, and, you know, Jacob was pushing three at that point, which is around the time where those males were not very keen to have him around. So we got a couple of interactions on video where this, this, these big male lions are pushing Jacob, and he's not liking it. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So, Alex, you were describing this this line, Jacob, to us, who you first met when he was just a few years old and, you know, establishing his place in the pride. What was different about that line the next time you saw him? What had happened to his leg? Just after COVID, we'd, uh, my fiancé, Anna Chrysel, and I got an, another gig with National Geographic to make a sequel to, to the documentary that we made called Tree Climbing Lions. And we, we went at an interesting time because... Um, Jacob had uh, just survived a uh, encounter with a wheel trap. It's a device used to actually catch animals and maim them. Uh, it's usually used, uh, at least in, in East Africa, to catch um, ungulate animals for the bushmeat trade. So an, so an ungulate is uh, any, any sort of ruminant animal, so thing like a buffalo, it can be a gazelle, it can be a Uganda cob. So basically think any animal with horns generally. Obviously, those animals are eaten as a protein source in a lot of villages and in a, even a lot of cities and towns, both for commercial and subsistence reasons. But obviously, the same areas where these um, antelope are often walking, the lions are following them to hunt them, and they walk into these traps. And uh, Jacob lost a leg in the process and um, was saved by members of the Uganda Wildlife Authority, which is the government wing of the Wildlife Department, uh, the Uganda Conservation Foundation, I think the WCS was also involved, and um, they managed to rescue him. What, from the trap itself? From the trap itself, but obviously in the process he actually lost the bottom half of his back left leg. So now he, he was a, a maimed three-legged lion. And what does that mean? What, what, what does that meant for his role in the pride? You know, when we, we arrived, when Anna arrived uh, with me, uh, we, we were working with, with another former Uganda Wildlife Authority ranger called Jimmy Kasembo. And we didn't really know what to expect because we thought, oh, well, you know, can we even find this guy? Um, you know, how is he doing? Can he even keep up with the pride? So that was really our mission. And when we got there, we found him a lot of the time alone. But usually at sort of dusk, he would give out this location call. 
and a location called this low, like, mm, that's what it sounds like, mm, like this, this low guttural call. And suddenly we saw, you know, six, seven lions come to his side. And at that point, uh, he was living in a pride of lions of 14 individuals. And yeah, he was not only keeping up with them, but uh, even trying to join them on hunts. He was getting involved in altercations with those big male lions that I was talking about. Uh, so, and he was even driving off hyenas around a buffalo carcass. I've got footage of him literally taking on hyenas. Incredible! How does he move with three on, legs? How does he do that? I mean, is he just is he limping as he goes? Yes, he's limping as he goes, and and I think he kind of knows, you know, some of the limitation. But I mean, th there's footage of him, you know, trying to run, trying to, you know, uh, Jimmy and Mustafa have said that they've seen him hunting cob on those three legs. A lot of the time, he'll just join the pride when they've made a kill. But they've seen him hunting. How far do these lions range? Like, do they yeah. move over much territory? So Jacob himself, he's actually moved 80 kilometers north from the south of the park to a place called Chambura. But, but historically, he moved from Uganda into the Congo and back. So this is the interesting thing about a lot of lion populations in Africa that we, we don't consider as, as members of the public and even scientists these are multi-passport holders. <laughs> they move across international boundaries, sometimes two, three countries at a time. And that makes them quite difficult to conserve and manage mm. because whose who's lion is it really? Is he tracked at all, like with a collar or, or something like that? Or how did you go about finding him when you yeah, were there? Yeah, so he currently has a collar that was fitted by the Uganda Conservation Foundation. But historically, he, he's had collars from various different institutions uh, we collared him in 2018, and subsequently he's been monitored by different people. Uh, so, yeah, he's monitored on like a daily basis. So he remarkably was was keeping up with his pride, even with three legs. But then what happened to, to many members of that pride in 2021? Unfortunately, you know, the, the, the thing is with Jacob, he, he kind of, you know, when they say cats have got nine lives, he literally has had nine lives. So he survived, before he lost the leg, he survived a snare, a wire snare. So he managed to walk away with just a bit of a, a maiming, but he, he was fine. He still had the leg. Then he lost the back leg. Then his pride got poisoned. And why is that? Why are the lions being poisoned? And yeah, by so the, the lions in that particular case were poisoned because of actual targeted body, uh, body, the body trade for lion parts. So six lions were killed in that poisoning event. Somehow he dodged that and managed to survive with a couple of his brothers. So that's a problem that we're seeing across a lot of places in Africa. We're seeing it in Mozambique, parts of South Africa. It's, it's fueled by the demand for lion body parts and, and the medicinal markets around that. And then what, what did he encounter after surviving the two traps and the poisoning? Yeah. Then he got gored by a buffalo, and he managed to survive that too. Obviously, there was a treatment process that, again, the Uganda Wildlife Authority uh, helped him. But yeah, this guy, if we, if, we, if we actually count, he's probably used four of his nine lives that we probably know of. He should and only, be a Marvel superhero. Exactly. Like <laughs> and, and, and God knows only what, uh, how many others, how many close encounters he's had that he's survived. Mm. So truly a special lion. As a wildlife biologist, Alex, you would be seeing animals die all the time. I mean, that's just what's, that's what happens in, in nature. They're injured, they're gored, they're killed. Mm. Is it different when you see an animal injured or killed by human activity, like the poisoning and the yeah. traps? Yeah, I think, I think there is, and I think that's, it's something that 
95% of scientists working on any charismatic species can relate to. And this is where it becomes kind of interesting territory because the longer you spend studying a particular animal, it can be an elephant, it can be a dingo, it can be a gorilla. There is a certain attachment. There's a, we, we anthropomorphize these things. We start to see personalities, traits, behaviors that we start to sort of say, well, they, they, they're so similar to us. But we have to be careful because in a lot of cases, you know, in a, you know these animals don't have any, uh, we don't have any policy level uh, ownership of them. Uh, like myself, I'm a South African. I'm certainly not a Ugandan. And, uh, you know, for that reason, I don't have any real say as to how those animals should be managed. I can make some scientific studies and sort of help the government, which, which I'm, I'm proud to be doing. But I cannot say anything on, on, on who should do what in terms of how these animals should or shouldn't be saved. So that's obviously always in the back of my mind as a foreigner. You know, how do we do this in a way that's not going to upset the, the local constituency? Yeah. Mm. You've spent a lot of time around these tree climbing lions and got up close in various ways with your camera and, and with the drone. Tell me about the, the one time that you did get genuinely scared. Where were mm. you? What were you doing? Yeah, I've seen big cats act uh, kind of scary on three occasions. Twice it was with the leopards that charged me, but that was totally warranted because we got too close. But this particular occasion was... At the end of 2017, we were just starting the documentary on the tree climbing lions. I was with my uh, really good research assistant, Sammy Soke, and uh, we just found Jacob, Julia, Janet, and um, so his whole, basically his whole pride. We were in Ishasha, one of the first days of filming, super excited, but we were in a quite a compromised part of the landscape. So we were uh, on some, like on a, on a kind of hillside. And there was all these termite mounds around us and the lions were just coming down from this big fig tree. And, and what, I remember, what were you in? Oh, we were in a little uh, Suzuki Jimny. It's one of the smallest four by fours available on the market. It's and a very tiny car. What kind of doors, what kind of protection do you have yeah, on the yeah, we side? Had, we had no, that's a really good point. We had no filming. We had a filming door. So my friend Matt Maiho in South Africa basically made like a little iron door, uh, but it wasn't a door. It was basically like something to hold my camera. So I was kind of exposed on this right-hand side. You're on a motorbike is what it sounds yeah, like Yeah, essentially. <laughs> I mean, it's like a tiny little car. And uh, But, you know, all the times that I've spent around big cats, I'd, I'd, they'd always seen the vehicle and the people in it as one entity and they'd never shown any interest. So Sam was just like, hey, man, maybe you know, we're too close to these lions. I don't feel comfortable. We should get out of here. And I was like, Sam, come on, man. Like, we're just getting started, dude. We're going to spend the whole night with these things. We're National Geographic filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just trying to, trying, to, trying to get some cool behavior and maybe them hunting. And then the, the one female just did this weird, like, flick tail that I'd, I'd kind of I'd seen before, but this was a bit odd. And then she just looked straight into the vehicle. And then... Um, Sam said, yeah, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be this close to the lions. We should get out of here. And, and, then, and then I was like, yeah, we, maybe we should just back up a bit. And, uh, and then suddenly as we're backing up the car and we're kind of turning around, don't forget there's all these termite mounds around us. So we're kind of trying to maneuver around them. We suddenly have two, two lions on either side of the vehicle. We have Jacob and his sister, Julia, and then um, Jacqueline and um, the other lioness on the left-hand side. And, and, we're, and they're walking parallel to us and they're looking into the vehicle. And I sort of start to accelerate and, and Sam takes out this big yellow 25-liter uh, empty drum, this, this jerry can that we have for fuel, and he starts to bang it on the side of the, the door. 
and the lions aren't getting discouraged by this big noise. And um, how fast was your heart going, Alex? Yeah, no, I was I was genuinely terrified. It was the only time that I've seen lions do this, and I don't know if it was because of the size of the vehicle. I I, I don't think so because I'd, I'd filmed lions in the north of the park. And they completely ignored the car, even though I was like a meter away from them after they killed a warthog. So this was one particular pride of lions, certain individuals, and I'd never seen that behavior before or after. And so you're reversing and your, your colleague is banging the side of the yeah. car with his, with his gallon drums. The lions are right there. How did, how did you get away? Uh, we just kind of dodged the termite mounds. I managed to get the car in the right direction, slowly drove and... and we just made a lot of noise, but the noise was completely, it was like redundant, didn't help. And this is the thing where a lot of people, if you walk into lions on foot in the middle of the day, they're, they're like big pussycats. You can just clap and, and shout and they'll run away with their tails between their legs. At night and at dusk, things completely change. Why? And they just lose complete fear of humans. Why? What's happening at night for lions? I, just, I think their eyesight is a lot better. And they, they, because of that, they grow, they just grow a lot bolder. So if you, if you read uh, Colonel James Patterson's original uh, Manitas of Tavo book, you know, uh, at the turn of the century when he's building that big railway, if you look at all the line attacks, the, most of those line attacks are all happening at night. And if you look at even some of Craig Packer's analyses of um, line attacks in Tanzania, they almost always happen at night with a, with a, with a moon in the background People are walking between villages. That's when lions are attacking people. They're not happening in the day. They, did they chase the car once you started They didn't. They never chased the car, but when we hit the road, we just accelerated and got out of there. Like, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. Did it change the way you approached filming? Like, did you still film at dusk or was that a time of day that you thought best not to no, be so close? No, we just were very uh, careful with that particular pride of lions. We just didn't film them at night. Are you armed when you're filming? No. We generally do always have a Uganda Wildlife Authority ranger in our vehicle. On this particular night, we didn't. But yes, there is always an AK-47 in the vehicle for safety. Um, not that I, I don't even know how that would look. We'd probably end up being shot ourselves. Like <laughs> That particular car was so small that I don't think, you know, we wouldn't have been able to do anything. Are lions the most dangerous thing you encounter in, in filming in those kind of circumstances? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, it's elephants and buffaloes and hippos. Those are actually the animals that I'd say I'm the most wary. So hippos are quite difficult at night. So that little safari lodge where I was staying for eight bucks a night, Timber Safari Lodge, they actually, the, 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 the hippos come and graze at night. So if you have to walk between, like they say, the kitchen and where you're sleeping, there's a high likelihood that you'll bump into a hippo. And what a lot of people don't know is hippos kill more animals. They kill more people in Africa than all of the big five combined. What? Yeah. Yeah. So hippos are quite, quite a gnarly one. And then obviously what elephants. What if you bump into a hippo? What's the hippo likely Whoa, to do? Man, you just got to run. Like it's, it's not something that you can kind of stand up to. It's like uh, you just got to get away from it. It's, uh, yeah, it's not, it's uh, slowly get around, around a wall or something. It's not, it's not, it's a, it's a kind of a dodgy place to be in. Yeah. Is it going to charge you to eat you or just to yeah, destroy they, you? Yeah, they just usually, they're not particularly comfortable um, uh, being away out of water. So, uh, and you certainly don't want to get between a hippopotamus and water. That's one of the worst things you can do is get between a hippo and where it wants to be. So, so, yeah, and then obviously elephants. Elephants uh, you have to be very careful with, especially on foot. But again, with an elephant, you don't want to run away. 
You never want to run away with an elephant. What do you do instead? Uh, you just have to stand up and shout and clap and, and basically um, uh, you, you should you should generally with, with a lot of animals in the wild, especially with big cats, you should also should not run. You should stand your ground, clap, shout, make yourself as big as possible. Um, yeah, and, and ideally uh, you should always be um, in, a, in a place where the wind is in your favor so, th so that they can't smell you. So always keep a bearing of the wind direction and always stay upwind of them so, so that they can't smell you because that's how all of these animals are invariably reacting to the presence of a human. They're, they're reacting to your smell and then they're reacting to the fact that you're a bipedal ape with forward-facing eyes. They've evolved to be scared of us. Yeah. You've been involved in a census, a new census for lions. Why is it important to know how many lions there are? What, what, what's the significance of that? Why is that crucial? I think the, the honest answer that I have for that is that conservation is a game of giving money. It's not a real game of generating money. Uh, so it's chronically underfunded. If you look at Africa, you need about a billion dollars. That's what uh, Jennifer Miller, Peter Lindsay, and those colleagues that uh, that did that study estimated is what you need if you want to safeguard the last protected areas in Africa with elephants and lions, a billion dollars annually wow. in order to save them, in order to effectively uh, fund anti-poaching forces, fences, and management authorities that are in charge of managing those animals. Well, that's only a few nuclear submarines. Yeah, like exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. So, so imagine that every year. Uh, we obviously don't have that. 90% of Africa's protected areas don't have the money to be able to effectively safeguard the, the populations of charismatic animals that are in them. And for that reason, we want to know, uh, or at least I hope that we want to know, uh, which conservation interventions and projects have the best outcomes for the conservation of animals. So what, what are the activities that are going to save lions on the ground? And, and, and the only way that we know this is by monitoring very intensively and fiercely how lions, tigers, elephants are actually doing. When you go to count lions, how do you know you're not counting the same lion twice? Well, this is the thing is unfortunately... About 50% of uh, studies that have been done in the past historically would have made that mistake. And the way that you avert that mistake is actually by taking high-resolution imagery of their faces and you can actually look at their whisker spot patterns and the colour of their noses. And what, that's different for every individual lion? It's different for about 93 to 97% of all lions. So Craig Packer really did the definitive study on this in... Um, in, in the Serengeti, and he, he looked, um, uh, and there was another group, uh, Penny, Penny Chick and, and Rudai, they, they also looked at subsample of lions, and about 97% of all 900 samples that they looked at have different whisker spot patterns. So is this how you've been doing your census, photographing lions and distinguishing them that way? Ex exactly. So that's one component, the, the individual identity of the animals, but also actually keeping a GPS log of where you're driving. So the, the biggest thing that we are not doing in most animal counts, whether they be counts of dingoes, whether they be counts of elephants, is we don't factor in where we have looked and where we haven't looked. And the aspect of where we haven't looked is just as important as where we have looked, because then we can actually factor in the animals which we aren't seeing in the population. Yeah. So I'm imagining this is involving a lot of scientists or researchers spreading out over a great distance to do the counting. How many people have you 
needed to, to conduct the census. Yeah, so, so that's really uh, an interesting aspect of our work in Uganda um, and, and some of the works of our colleagues in Kenya is that the, the, the method has brought together uh, over sort of 20 different entities in Uganda, over 100 different Ugandan and international collaborators have essentially uh, merged forces to survey over 12,000 square kilometers of protected area land. And it's, and it's, it's not, um, it's, it's really the demands of the species. It's the fact that these lions move over such big distances. There's no scientific entity or research group or national park authority that could really do this effectively by themselves. Uh, we need to work together to cover as much land and to share as much resources because of that underfunding to effectively be able to figure out how many of these things there are out there. The fact that the, the tree climbing lines you've spent so much time with spend most of the day sitting around in trees, does that make them an easier group to count than, than lines that are moving about on, on land? It's a very, very good question. And the reason that it's a very good question is because the counting mechanism that we use one of the parameters is, is called detection probability. What is the likelihood that you see a lion in a landscape? And as you can imagine, with a lion that's sitting in a tree, you're driving around and suddenly, boom, from 150 meters, you see a tail hanging out of a tree. So for that reason, you are seeing them with a very high likelihood. But that in of itself is this weird... Um, it's kind of like a, it's, it's, it's deceptive because you're seeing them with such a high frequency. So you think there's a lot, but actually you're seeing the same individual over and over and over again. So you have to dissect those two things away from each other. And where are you with the results at the moment, Alex? Have you, have you got figures on how many of these, say, tree climbing lines are, are left in Africa? We do. So we, we're, we're about to um, publish our national census report with the Uganda Wildlife Authority. Um, the, the, the count that we did in, in 2018 showed that there was uh, roughly 72 individuals left in a 2,500 square kilometre area, which is a, it's a pretty small population. So to give you an idea, 2,500 square kilometers is about the size of the Maasai Mara, which is probably the most iconic lion population anywhere in Africa, anywhere on planet Earth. Um, and there you have about 400 lions uh, living at a density of about 17 individuals per 100 square kilometers. This is about an eighth of that. So this is showing you that although this is an incredibly iconic special population that's doing this wonderful behavioral thing that's bringing in a lot of tourists, they're severely threatened. 72 seems tiny. Is that viable? I mean, what, what do you think the future of these lions is? So the, the biggest thing that, that we need in populations of, of, of wildlife, especially wild cats, is we're always interested in the females. The females are really the lifeblood of any population. And the reason the females are so important is because these cats are polygamous. So males will typically cover and have babies with multiple females, maybe three prides, four prides, one big coalition of males. And what's happening in Queen Elizabeth is that there's not a lot of females. In fact, the sex ratio there is about one to one when really we want to be seeing one male to two or three females. Um, so that's, that's where this population is threatened. The females are getting disproportionately taken out of the system, probably because of those poisoning events and also human wildlife conflict. There's cattle that's in this park. And are females more likely to be targeted by humans for some reason? 
they are I, my hypothesis is that they are disproportionately sensitive to poisoning and conflict because often if a carcass is laced those females will come onto the carcasses and then and then you you're hitting three or four females males might be in another area because don't forget males are moving over a much larger area to cover home ranges so typically in queen elizabeth the home ranges of of males versus females are about 3 to 4 times the size of females so yes they are disproportionately more sensitive to being targeted and what's happened with jacob this lion that as you say has survived maybe four of its nine close encounters do you know what's up with him now have you seen him recently yeah so he's living uh, with his brothers taibu and and there's another there's another male there um in a, in a, in pretty much the center of of queen elizabeth in a very thick and difficult area to get to called chambura uh, so they moved about 80 kilometers uh, south after the poisoning event um, to try and find females. And now they've, they've got a territory up there and they're, they're living there and they're monitored. Um, but yeah, they're, uh, they're just in a very difficult place to get to. And is your hope that you'll try to get back there to encounter him again? Yeah, I'm hoping to get back there next month to actually try and sort of finish telling more of his story. And, uh, you know, he's an older, he's an older boy now. So uh, yeah, just try and tell the sort of, Tell more about what he's been through as a sort of icon for the species here. You, of course, are in Australia now. Is there any of this uh, learning in terms of wildlife that you're applying to the native species around you in this country? Yeah, so my, my postdoc is, is going to have a strong dingo element to it. And uh, obviously dingoes are very divisive in the country because a lot of people don't even don't even recognise them as, as, as being a particularly important ecological you know, variable in the ecosystem. But there's obviously also a lot of conflict uh, between different research groups and then obviously the farming community. So my hypothesis is that the monitoring of the species uh, on different lands, whether it's on cattle land, indigenous land, in national parks, that in of itself could potentially bring some of these groups together is to try and figure out, you know, how are these populations of dingoes doing or, or wild dogs, if you'll call them, uh, in these different areas for a variety of different reasons. Alex, I think it's actually been in the best interests of science and wildlife conservation that you ended up getting expelled and spending that time in Joburg Zoo and led to your life here with us. Thank you so much for sharing some of your research Thank on you so much for having me. Thank you. Dr Alex Braskowski was my guest on Conversations today. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.